0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Adrian Wooldridge. Adrian's the political editor of The Economist and writes that magazine's budget column, An Analysis of British Life and Politics. He's also the author of a brand new book called The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World, which is going to be the topic of our discussion today. Adrian, great uh, to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you note in the book, meritocracy shapes our world these days from top to bottom. You know, It spans partisan divides in the US and the UK. Uh, it determines where we live, with whom we interact, and it structures major institutions throughout the West and, and in the East as well, of course. So as I, I think it would be helpful, you know, just to clarify our terms... Um, and how you use the term meritocracy. And, you know, what, what should it look like in principle, and how is it being implemented these days in practice?
1: Meritocracy, in the broadest sense of the word, means judging people on their individual abilities rather than on the position that they're born into in the world, by their family, and on the basis of their family connections. Uh, I think that's a, a broad and widely accepted view, but I think it also has another meaning which is just as important to that. And that is the notion of trying your very best to provide people with a quality of opportunity. Because if you have um, objective measurements of people's abilities, if you have all positions open to talent, but 1% of the population has fantastic education and 99% of the population doesn't have any education at all, you haven't really got something that could be called a meritocracy. So it means formally... Uh, freedom of talent to be tested and um, judged objectively but informally it also means a system of mass education probably mass education all the way up to secondary school at the very least
0: we we're governed in the modern world by meritocracy we hear about it as, as school children you know, presidents talk about it as as uh, the rightful order of things Um you know, most of us internalize its inner logic if we want to get ahead in the world. But as you show uh, very interestingly in the book, meritocracy is something that is, in fact, pretty new historically. And it's it's a, a kind of radical idea. Um, and it's it's certainly an unnatural way for human beings to behave, given our, our proclivities to group membership, our belonging to kinship networks and other forms of, of hierarchy. So I wonder if you could... Just describe a little bit how how uh, the pre meritocratic world was structured, and what changes had to take place, you know, in intellectual life, in the business world, across our institutions, for meritocracy to uh, to emerge.
1: Absolutely, the most important thing to grasp about meritocracy is that for most of human history, we haven't had it. And we haven't had it as a norm or as an ideal, let alone as a practice. For most of human history, society has been organized according to very, very different principles. Those principles are essentially that you inherit your position in the world and that the world is best ordered if people inherit their positions. If you look at Shakespeare, for example, he's full of talk about how fathers should follow their, uh, how sons should follow their fathers into their jobs, that society is um, untuned and disordered if um, you have social mobility. Um, So, so, you know, the notion that people inherit their positions is very widely accepted. The notion that the organising principle in society is not the individual, but the family and family connections, the dynasty, is very widely accepted. And also, very strangely, the notion that jobs are property which can be bought, sold, given away Um, in patronage is also extremely widely accepted so you have uh, the notion that there should be a tight connection between your ability to perform a job and having that job is a very modern thing I came across in my studies a nice example of a woman called Mrs Margaret Scott who in 1783 was earning 200 pounds a year as a wet nurse to the Prince of Wales Uh, And that's remarkable because £200 a year is a lot of money in those days. But also it's remarkable because at that time, the Prince of Wales was 21 years old. In in other words, she got this job and, you know, that was it. Um, And that was, uh, uh, you know, the way that the world was organised right the way up, I think, until the 18th century. Now, there are two exceptions to this. One is uh, an intellectual exception, which is Plato. Plato comes along in the Republic and envisions a world... That is essentially meritocratic in which people owe their positions to their intellectual abilities their philosophical abilities their leadership qualities and society is divided into three classes the the men of gold uh, men of silver and men of bronze and for that to work he says you must have equality of opportunity because men of gold could, could emerge in any of the classes you have to constantly sift through the population for people of talent and secondly and this is an extraordinarily radical thing that Plato says. He says women might just as likely be people of gold as, as, as men. He says there's no reason to exclude uh, women from what he called the guardian class. So he's very, very radical. Uh, and his ideas sort of haunt the West. They're there in the Renaissance. They're there in the 19th century, um, inspiring meritocratic ideas. So that's one sort of pre-meritocratic meritocrat as it were and the second is the Chinese system which from the early middle ages onwards uses a system of mass examinations to select scholar bureaucrats for the for for the imperial palace so at a time when England is governed with by people with names like um uh, you know Eric Bloodaxe China is 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 governed by you know imperial bureaucrats selected by examinations and relatively early on these examinations are taken by about 10% of the population an extraordinarily large percentage of the population and there's a degree of uh, of such you know obviously if you're come from a privileged background you're more likely to succeed in these in these examinations but there is still a significant degree of social mobility as a result of that so we have to envision a society basically organized according to the principles of inheritance of positions. But this platonic idea of an aristocracy of talent always there in the Western mind. And this practice over in China of social mobility based on examinations. Then something big happens in the late 18th and 19th centuries. That is the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the sort of British Liberal Revolution, all of which uh, make a reality of... um, an aristocracy of talent, of, of open competition. And these, these three revolutions really completely changed the world. Later
0: in the book, in chapters 14 and 15, you describe some of the problems, though, that meritocracy ran into during the second half of the 20th century. I, I'm thinking of uh, Michael Young's book on merit- meritocracy, which was a real critique. Um, You know, in in the 60s and 70s, it was challenged by egalitarians. You know, they argued that individual differences were basically fictitious. They attacked tools like IQ tests that purported to measure such differences. And they insisted that um, an unequal society, even if it was ordered by merit, was something undesirable and unjust. And then in the 80s and 90s, you write, it was corrupted meritocracy by a wealthy elite that began to marry solely within its own ranks and, um, you know, began to enrich itself, basically. It became a kind of cronyism. Uh, You know, you would have to say that these challenges haven't debated, um, as charges of meritocracy in name only are now driving political movements on both sides of the the political aisle. So I'm, I'm wondering... You know, are these problems fatal ultimately to the meritocratic project? As you note, you know, it's it's something relatively new. Um, Or can the ideal of meritocracy be somehow rescued from these problems?
1: Absolutely. Well, it's very important to remember that the term meritocracy uh, was introduced by Michael Young in 1958 as a criticism. Um, He thought that meritocracy was a terrible thing. Uh, He thought it was a terrible thing uh, because it made uh, he thought it was a terrible thing because it actually worked, in his opinion. But it worked in such a way that the people who uh, got to the top on the basis of their merits were insufferably smug. And the people who were left at the bottom were insufferably depressed because they couldn't blame their poor performance on social injustices. Right, or it was, it as was they, their, their fault. Yeah, it's words. their fault. It's, it's their fault. So Jung has this incredibly interesting critique that meritocracy is actually working. It's transforming society um, in a way. It's really creating a ladder of opportunity from the bottom to the top of society. Um, IQ tests, you know, he thinks are great. He thinks they're working really, really well, but he thinks the ideal is itself uh, a monstrosity that we, that we need to get away from. Um, So he he takes the standard left-wing criticism of meritocracy that it's a sham and turns it upside down. He says it's not a sham, but it's because it's not a sham that it's so bad. Um, I think think that his critique is fascinating. I also think that it's wrong. Um, But I think one of the things that happens, as you've just uh, 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 noted, um, in the 80s and 90s, is that it does become a bit more of a sham in the sense that you get... Um, A self-perpetuating sort of um, cognitive elite or intellectual oligarchy, uh, oligarchy, which passes its privileges onto its children. But I think the reason that it becomes much more of a sham is precisely because the egalitarian critique of meritocracy, which Michael Young was uh, associated with, begins to bite in the sense that what it does is to be, it begins to get rid of selection by merit, begins to get rid of, rid of the use of IQ tests, certainly in, in, in Great Britain, a bit less in America, and begins to remove the ladders of opportunity from the bottom of society to the top of society, which make meritocracy a reality. And it's exactly the same time that the, that, that's, um, the public sector in education is losing faith in merit. The private sector in education is gaining much more faith in merit so it's making itself more more meritocratic so the cognitive elite as it were captures this idea um and uses it to its own advantage largely uh, not largely but, but but to a significant extent because the left has lost faith in it so it's a very double-edged sword that um that that's um that michael young is 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 wielding there Um, But is this, you know, so there are two critiques going on. One is that meritocracy is a terrible idea. The other is that it's a sham. The first of those tends to actually reinforce the, the second. Now, the critique has become absolutely pervasive. So the left hates meritocracy because it doesn't like the notion that people have different abilities. The right doesn't like meritocracy because he it thinks it's a sham which an arrogant cognitive elite uses to, um, to, to reinforce its position. And a lot of academics don't like it um, because they think that's, uh, again, because they think that it's crooked in, in, in some way. Um, which is one reason why I wrote this book, which was to push push back against this growing consensus, because I think it's completely wrong about meritocracy. I think that the, you know, a number of things I would say about meritocracy. One is that it's a revolutionary principle; that it's born in revolt against a society of inherited privilege. Its essence is to criticise inherited privilege. Secondly, that it's a self-correcting and self uh, and self-improving idea, um, set of ideas. So whenever meritocracy has begun to calcify as you might say, it's calcified in America in the 80s and 90s, it's always managed to reach into itself and improve itself. So if you look at what happened in America after the second, uh, after the American Revolution, it began to sort of calcify uh, with the Jeffersonian, the revolutionary elite. Uh, they tended to hold positions. Uh, and then it was jolted again into life and began to expand uh, to uh, incorporate new sections of society, immigrants, plutocrats, uh, you know, i mean the business the business elite uh women as well as uh, uh, men so it, it broadens itself out and it keeps broadening itself out it broadens itself out massively after the second world war so what i uh, argue in this book is that the whatever 's wrong with meritocracy is often and ideally cured by more meritocracy, not less meritocracy and indeed when we 've had revolts against merit as we did in the sixties uh, it quite often leads actually to less social mobility rather than to sol to solution to the problem.
0: Very interesting. Uh, you you conclude the book uh, on a striking note uh, note that really looks at the world geopolitically. You note that you know earlier we we had discussed briefly the Asian um, history of meritocracy, Chinese history of meritocracy. Uh, but Asian societies as, as a whole have generally adopted a meritocratic approach to social order. You know, this can take a variety of forms. So in China, you know, you have the the red meritocracy these days that that really brings together, you know, political corruption with neutral rules. Uh, in Singapore, you've got educational stratification and a very competitive culture in both business and government. Um you know, and across, across Asia, kind of f- focus on standardized test performance. So, you know, what, what are the geopolitical implications if you have an Eastern world that is uh, increasingly meritocratic or, or certainly uh, consistently meritocratic and a West that has, um, you know, uh, come to f- find uh,
1: dissatisfaction in the merit- meritocratic ideal? They win, we lose. I mean, that's that's simply uh, simply put. But that is that is the uh, the conclusion. That is that that is the result of this. If you look at uh, meritocracy, if you look at institutions, and if you look at countries, and if you look at groups of countries, there's a very simple pattern that emerges, and that is that the people who adopt meritocratic selection that is selecting people on the basis of talents and promoting them on the basis of their performance, those institutions win. Those institutions do really well. So if you compare public companies against family companies, public companies do better because they're more meritocratic. If you look at countries which have adopted meritocratic promotion over those that haven't, meritocratic company, countries do better. So look at Singapore, which in the 1960s was an irrelevant swampland now has some of the world's highest living standards. That was because Lee Kuan Yew said, we're gonna be a meritocracy. We're gonna be a brain intensive country. Compare Singapore with any other similar country like Sri Lanka, which is actually richer than Singapore in 1960. Uh, And Singapore's done better because it's been more meritocratic. If you look at groups of countries such as the Scandinavian countries, uh, Northern European countries, which are rigorously meritocratic, very much more competitive than their rather come by our style socialism suggests and compare them with um, southern European countries like Spain and Italy, which are you know very familial, very nepotistic. The northern European countries, countries win. So there's a massive evidence uh, that shows that meritocracy is the key to economic success. So um, fortunately, there's been a convenient marriage between democracy and meritocracy in the West for quite some time, which has meant that the West has been able to pull ahead and this great engine of meritocracy has been harnessed by uh, the democratic West. But now the democratic West is beginning to turn against meritocracy at exactly the time when the Eastern countries are, are re-embracing it. And you know, I said that China, you know, was the world's first great meritocratic society. And that helped it become one of the world's wealthiest societies. But meritocracy in China became very atrophied because they are obsessed with a narrow range of tests, which essentially tests tested people's ability to do Confucian puzzles, you know, to produce beautiful poems and, and to recite the works of Confucius. What's happened now is they've taken that tradition... Of testing for Confucian knowledge, and instead applied it to science, engineering, to all of these things that are much more closely related to to, to wealth creation. So they reinvented their meritocratic tradition in a highly modern uh, form. Singapore again uh, took uh, the, the meritocratic tradition partly from the Confucian tradition, partly from Britain actually, and Lee Kuan Yew went to Cambridge and was very impressed by the system there, and partly from from the United States. And they see in that a formula. For success in the future, so I think that if America's going, gone quite a long way now to um, moving away from meritocracy, we have Boston Latin uh, School in uh, school replacing admission by um, tests and academic uh, performance by lottery. Lowell School in San Francisco doing that—that's that's insane. That's 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 crazy. That's institutional suicide. Uh, you have uh, universities moving away from SATs to towards what they would uh, they might describe as cuddlier sorts of tests but in fact a much more uh, much more biased much le- less objective tests uh, and you have revolts against you know gifted education programs right across America uh, at the moment uh, and an emphasis on you know an emphasis against excellence I think because excellence is seen as potentially discriminatory uh, and I think that's to do that, at a time when your biggest rival power is going in the opposite direction, and when that opposite direction—it can be documented—to uh, demonstrate that it's economically extremely powerful—is, I think, you know, a, a potential act of civilizational suicide.
0: What um, you know, to get back to the, the the kind of practical agenda of your book, um, what you know, what, what is the best case to be made for meritocracy? meritocratic ideals, again, in the West, in the in the United States, is obviously, you know, key to educational reform.
1: Uh, But but what? How do we do this? Well, I I argue in my book that there are two really very, very strong arguments for meritocracy. One is the argument that I've just outlined, which is an argument for efficiency. It's economically efficient, and that can be shown uh, on the basis of numerous measures. But the other is, I think it's just. uh, And I think that most people intuitively understand that it's just, that you should judge people on the basis of their performance, on the basis of their abilities, on the basis of their... Uh, capacity to do to, to do a job. Now, the the strongest argument against that is, you know, Rawls's argument that we don't in somehow in some way um, owe our talent to anything other than luck. I think that's a very partial reading of things. I think we owe our talent to an ability uh, to a, a combination of luck. And there is, you know, if you happen to be born musical or in, or academically very able, that's that is good luck. But even the most able people have to work very hard. Uh they have to they have to absorb a huge amount of knowledge, they have to sacrifice leisure for um you know swatting, for 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 working very hard. And because of this combination of ability and effort, which makes merit, I think that it's reasonable for a society to reward people um, who have that combination of ability and, and, and effort with 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 more money, uh more opportunities and um you know uh rewards commensurate with their with with their talents and i think that that to do that is to take individuals seriously you know if you say that talents are just arbitrary things which individuals have regardless of their of uh, uh, of their working or and their, and their studying uh, then you create a system whereby institutions can just give away you know um opportunities on the basis of lotteries ultimately because you don't know you don't deserve it i think that 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 um, merit is to do with dessert and dessert is to do with your ability to translate raw talents into raw abilities into marketable sellable saleable saleable talent so i think there's a justice you know there's an argument from efficiency and there's an argument from justice for some sort of meritocratic allocation of of opportunities now i do think that um i do take seriously the criticisms of Michael Young and many current anti-meritocrats, that there is something rather snobbish, rather self-satisfied about today's cognitive elite. Um, and I do think that we owe our, the cognitive elite owes its position to, to hard work, but it also owes it to a measure of luck. And we need to create some sort of set of social mechanisms uh, which revives the notion of duty, revives the notion that to those to whom a lot is given by society, um, from them a great deal is sort of demanded as well. So the pe- people who are people who do occupy these positions uh, of privilege also have to give back uh, to society. That was uh, the great 19th century revolution in Britain was all about instilling a sense of social conscience into the ruling elite. And uh, again, in, in America, in the late 19th, the late 20th century, with Roosevelt and the rest, you had the same thing. And I think we need another period of remoralization of the meritocracy.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Adrian Wildridge. His new book is called The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, we will link to the book uh, in the description. And you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. As always, if you like what you've heard on the show, uh, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Adrian Wooldridge, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.